The revolution is here. How's that for a start? <laughs> it's the title that was given to one of the commentaries that I studied for today's text. The revolution is here. Something new is happening. I think back to our Isaiah passages during the Advent season, and, and we were told that the light is dawning, that God is doing something new, and, and that led us to Bethlehem and to the birth of a Christ child. That was where Advent was leading, but also in the season of Advent, we're not just going back and looking back to that reality, we're also anticipating that that same Christ is going to return. And friends, between that nativity and today, guess what's happening? The light of God is dawning. Darkness is being punctuated by God's light. The revolution is here. I think it might be time for something new to happen. How about you? Did you show up to church thinking that what I need at the turn of the calendar, the turn of the new year, I need something new in my life? If that's you, then I have something to offer you today. <laughs> Another commentary that I was working with had a different title for their heading of this chapter. Orientation, the journey begins. It's not quite as exciting as the revolution is here. I'll give you that, but I kind of like it too. I like the idea that the journey is beginning for us, that, that, it's, that we're joining something that has already been happening, that you and I are not the originators of this revolution, that it's been going on. The journey has already happened. We need to be oriented to what has gone on before us so that we can help do our part. I think there's something beautiful about that. Young people, my teenagers, it's nice to see you sitting down front again. I've missed you. You might think that the world has to be changed by you. I don't think so. Oh, it'd be amazing if you do amazing things. That's true. But you know what? I want you to know today that you're joining something that has been ongoing for over 2,000 years. And actually, even if we go past the New Testament, it's longer than that. And it's going to continue even after you're dead and gone. All that's expected of you is that you do your part. There's something kind of freeing about that, isn't there? That, that all of the world's pressures and all of the world's problems don't sit on our shoulders. We don't have to change everything. We only need to do our part. Oh, the revolution is here. Let's get ourselves oriented to this journey that we are on. There's people that have gone before us. There are words that have been spoken before us. We only need to hear and do our part and move this revolution forward. I kind of like that. So I think this is a good place for us to start 2024. Are we used to that? I almost wrote 2023 on my check today. 2024. Our book of orientation for this month is the book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles, as sometimes it's called. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 1. And if you need a Bible, don't forget there's some available in the back there. And while you're hunting for Acts chapter 1, I want to tell you a little bit about our preaching schedule or calendar for this coming year. 
If you've been with us over this last year, you know that I use the lectionary, which is a set text. There, there are defined four texts that are a part of the lectionary. There's an Old Testament, there's a Psalm, there's a New Testament, and there's a Gospel that are a part of the lectionary each and every Sunday. And part of the thing that I think is beautiful about that is that it's not just our church that was doing that, but there's churches all over the globe and all over in terms of denominations that were turning to the same text that we were turning to. The Psalms that you heard last year were the assigned Psalm texts. I preached out of the Gospel of Matthew because that was the assigned text, the assigned Gospel for last year. And there's something really beautiful about this idea of of wrestling with Scripture that I didn't choose but was chosen for us and that we did it with other believers. I, I like that idea. But we spent almost all of last year in one book of the Bible, Matthew, and it's good. But I got to thinking maybe we need to broaden that. Maybe we need to be a little bit more expansive this year. This is one of my favorite styles of preaching. I love boring down. I love going deep into a book, but then I like to follow that up by doing something that is going a little bit broader, a little bit wider. And so this year we're going to touch on 12 books of the Bible. Did you know that? Yeah, 12. Get ready. Seven in the New Testament, five in the Old Testament. All right. I got one person that's excited. All right. Let me see if I can sell it some more. Uh, no, I'm just. Not all of these will we preach through the entire book. We're going to do that next, next month. We're going to be in 1 John, and I'm going to preach through the entire book of 1 John. Pretty hard to preach through the entire book of Acts in one month. Uh, I don't think it can be done, actually. So I'm choosing four chapters that I'm going to touch on for a reason. Our sermon series for this month is New Beginnings. And so I'm looking at Acts, this new beginning, the church that's taking shape. I'm trying to learn lessons that I can hand on to you about what might new beginnings look like for us. So some of these books, we'll just touch on a few chapters and some will go through all of them. I'm looking forward to it. If you're interested in knowing which books of the Bible we will be preaching on, then did you know you can find that on the app? you guys look at your app? All right. On the app, you'll find 2024's preaching calendar. You'll also find now, I've put a new link on there for the e-news, so if you're not getting the e-news or you're having a hard time finding it in all the hundreds of emails that you get, guess what? It's right there, quick touch. Uh, There's information on there about the preaching series as well. And for those of you that don't want to do the app, you don't want to do the email, There's some printed copies in the back for you, so you can know what we're doing this year. So, let's turn to the book of Acts, and let's learn our first lesson on new beginnings. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 26, new beginnings start small. Reading out of the NIV translation, Picking up at verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. These have been the ones that were in the upper room before Jesus was crucified. And said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. There's some description there of what that might look like, but because we have young people in here, I'm going to 
bypass that language. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called at the field in, the, in their language, Alkadama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may this his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven disciples, apostles. So with the idea of revolution planted in your mind, was this the text you were anticipating to be read? (laughs) Probably not, right? I mean, the very next chapter, all I had to do was go to the next chapter, and the next chapter is the gift of the Holy Spirit coming, Pentecost. Oh, that's where revolutions begin, right? The giving of the Spirit. But not not in this passage. This passage is not as revolutionary or as exciting as the Pentecost passage. There's no denying that. But all revolutions start small. And I wonder if we always remember this. I think we find out about revolutions and we read about them kind of after they've happened and as history tells us about these ideas. And we forget that they start with small actions and small people. All these small details add up over time to become major events and Uh, All these small actions make possible the really big action, this thing that we learn about in history class. When I was young, I used to dream about making big changes in this world. Am I the only one that did this? I would read in history, or I I always have liked history, so I'd read historical books, and I'd read about the wars and the revolutions and the social kind of changes, uh, events that would happen that would change societies, and I would think to myself as a young age, I want to be a part of that. I want to be in the middle of something like that. But my life, and the life of my family and friends, and even in the churches that I've grown up in and pastored, guess what? They've been pretty ordinary, <laughs> kind of mundane. Nothing compared to the lives of people like, well, let me name a few for you that I've been inspired by. Joan of Arc. She was a big figure when we went to France, by the way. Martin Luther, might be a name you know. How about Frederick Douglass? We'll stick closer to Rochester. Susan B. Anthony. We know their stories. We've been inspired by their actions. What about Martin Luther King Jr.? Oh, you might have some people that you would name that have inspired you, people that you have studied or learned from or were, saw what they did, that they found themselves at a crossroad in the world where something new could happen, and they helped it bring it into reality. Their lives are extraordinary. 
We remember them because their lives were extraordinary. Mine doesn't seem so extraordinary. How about you? Anybody in here feel like they have an extraordinary life? I'm just curious. Did anybody raise their hand to that question? (laughs) I've never felt like my life is extraordinary. I want you to understand, I'm not complaining to you about that. My very much ordinary family is kind of nice. I like them all right. I like that I have a family. I like that I get to spend time with them. I, I like that Frederick Douglass, for instance, was all over the world, if you know his life story. He left his wife here. I'm glad that maybe I don't have that lifestyle. I've pastored a number of churches, this one included, and they haven't been perfect. You guys are close, but you're not quite there. <laughs> they have done really good things, full of really good people. But truth be told, pretty ordinary. And I like you guys all right. <laughs> Just like I like my family all right. I love them. I love you guys. I love pastoring an ordinary church, truth be told. When I was young, I wanted to do extraordinary things, and I'm kind of content with what I'm doing today. You know, I'm, the Bible is filled with lots of amazing God moments. You know these, and some of them are probably your favorites. Moments that are so absolutely extraordinary. Think of the burning bush that doesn't burn up with Moses. I think of the parting of the sea. I think of Jesus walking on water. The voices from heaven that are recorded as speaking to people. Oh, it's amazing. But if that's all that the Bible contained, then I would fear that you and I might think that we're not a part of that story because I don't know about you. Those kinds of events don't happen to me. It haven't happened to me, at least not very often. But thankfully, the Bible is not simply a recording of all the awes and wonders that God does in this world. For instance, sandwiched between two amazing events, Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. That's amazing. I would have liked to have been there that day. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon those in that upper room. Oh, I'd like to have been there that day. Sandwiched between these two amazing, awe-inspiring, remarkable events is what? 14 verses that are pretty boring, frankly. I think if you were to give it an analogy, I would say that the verses that I've read to you today are a bit like an ancient shopping list. Who really cares that the disciples got together and that they replaced Judas? Is that life-changing to you? Are you inspired by that? Are you ready to go and do the revolution? (laughs) Kind of like a shopping list, isn't it? This is housekeeping. Why is this in our Bible? Why aren't we getting to the Holy Spirit already? That's where revolutions start. And yet, friends... It's recorded, isn't it? Between the ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit is this text, 14 verses that tell us that the disciples were gathered together, that in the midst of reading Scripture and praying, they decide that one needs to be replaced, Judas, the one that betrayed Jesus. 
Surely there must be something then that you and I can discover or learn from this text. The revolution of Acts is like no revolution humanity has ever seen because it's built around the church. That's what the book of Acts is all about, the telling of our story, the journey that you and I are being oriented to. We are a part of it. But this story is not one that is simply a miracle upon miracle, wonder upon wonder. The amazing work of God is punctuated by the ordinary work of people like you and me. Today's verses recount for us the story of God's people regrouping, mobilizing, getting ready for this new mission that they are about to go on. And before they can go to the ends of the earth, which is what Jesus commissions them to do in the previous verses, and before the Holy Spirit can apparently come to them, they need to do a little housekeeping. And the first action of business is to replace Judas. First, I think we should notice that Paul, Peter takes the lead here. Are you surprised by that? Maybe if you think about Peter right before the crucifixion, you would be surprised about this. Not the Peter that we know later in Acts, but do you remember the three-time denier, Peter? Friends, that only happened like 43 days earlier. A lot of time hasn't passed between where Peter was denying Jesus and now where Peter stands up amongst this group and takes the lead. Gathered together and praying, they make observations about Scripture. I think this is an important point for us. Peter doesn't just stand up and say to the group, I have an idea. I have a thought. I think we should do this. No, they were praying together, the text tells us, and they were apparently either reflecting on Scripture or reading Scripture together because suddenly texts are coming to mind. And inspired by that, Peter stands amongst the, le- the group, the 120, all those that are gathered, and he says, I think this is what God is calling us to. I think this is what we need to consider. Peter believes it's critical to replace Judas And I'm wondering if there's an implication for us on this revolution that we are a part of. Maybe revolutions aren't always born out of original thinking. Sometimes they are. But maybe the revolution that we're talking about and that we're trying to be oriented to isn't about original thinking. It's not about you and me coming up with brand new ideas that nobody else has ever thought of. Maybe, like Peter We need to be inspired by praying together, reading Scripture together. Because at the center of this, it's not about Peter, but it's about God. God is the one that was moving in the midst of this group that Jesus had ascended. That did not mean that they were left alone, that God wasn't present with them. Their God is in the midst of their praying. He's moving. In the midst of their reflecting on Scripture, He's moving. He's compelling them. And I'm wondering, can't the same happen for us in this new year? That we can open up the words of our Bible and we can gather together and, re- and pray together and that God Almighty, God the creator of heaven and earth, can actually begin to speak to us, move in us, draw us to make conclusions, to come up with new ideas, 
In this case, we need to replace one of our members. In opening themselves up to God, we find the disciples are inspired to make a decision. We aren't given a reason exactly for why this decision is so important. Peter tries to link two texts of Scripture, two psalm passages together, by the way, to try to make this argument a reality for them. This is why we need to do it. But it doesn't really explain what is the need to replace Judas. Why do we have to do this? And, and I suspect that there's something to do with the number 12. You know that there were 12 disciples, right? And, and so at this point, even though the number isn't mentioned here, we, we have sort of this built-in thinking that there were 12 disciples, and, and you take one of those away, there's now 11 disciples, but 12 is a pretty important number in Scripture, and you know this. You don't necessarily need me to tell you this, but go back to the Old Testament, and there are 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes of Israel represents shorthand for the people of God. Every time we hear about the 12 tribes, it's not just about 12 tribes, it's about the people of God. Jesus comes, and what does he do? His very first action is to call disciples, and how many disciples does he call? Well, he calls 12, doesn't he? Surely that's no mistake. What's happening in the New Testament? Why does Jesus call 12 disciples? Is there something supernatural about the number 12? No. But he's connecting what he's doing to what has already happened. There's a reformation, there's a reshaping of God's people that's happening in the Gospels. Jesus calls the 12 disciples to offer back to us a new version of God's people. I suspect that's why the one needs to be replaced. So that we have 12 apostles, 12 disciples. There's a hole that needs to be filled. A few things are interesting about this, though. Peter is the one who takes the lead on this. The three-time denier is the one that stands up and says, we should replace the one that has betrayed Jesus. It's not like Peter is innocent here. Maybe it would have been better for another disciple to stand up and say, I think we should replace Judas. Are you with me? But Peter does. And again, only 43 days after his denial, this text is happening. Only 43 days moves us from Peter the denier to Peter the one that wants to begin to take lead. And nowhere in this text that I've read this morning does, does the, the upper room crowd say, wait a minute, Peter, sit down. We know who you are. You've proved yourself. I don't think you should be the leader of this group. Not in there, is it? They seriously listen to Peter's words. They consider it and they decide as a group to follow the recommendation that Peter offers to this group. I find that surprising, but I also find it quite encouraging. Even though the Gospels don't gloss over Peter's terrific, horrific, excuse me, denial of Jesus. Did you know that the Gospels also record his act of contrition? is coming back to Jesus. Go to the end of the Gospel of John and you get to see it. This broken man is devastated at what he's done. Thinks he's outside the bounds of what God is doing now. Suddenly Jesus comes and calls him back to the fold, empowers him, calls him to feed the sheep. Do you remember that text? Mm. In 40 days, we go from sad Peter that's in the boat fishing 
to Peter beginning to take the lead in the early church. Only 40 days and his life is changed. And friends, we're going to see that Peter, throughout the book of Acts, if you read it, you're going to see that he's a person that's growing. He's grown in these 40 days, there's no doubt about that. And he's going to grow even further as he receives a vision later on in this book to, to expand his ideas. Oh, Peter is a surprising figure here. I'm wondering if this relays to us, though. Surely this is a reminder to us that this revolution, this community of God is not made up of saints only, but of sinners. Isn't that what Jesus said? He came for the sinners? This, this thing that he is doing, this, this work that he's doing is not for the saints, it's not for the righteous, it's for the sinners. It's so that we can be pulled into the family of God and that's what the church is. Those who have histories, those who have mistakes in the past, those who have sinned, they're invited into this family just like Peter. And guess what? They're not condemned to sit on the sidelines. Those very people who used to be can now be the ones that rise up and say, you know what? I'm wondering if God is asking us to do this. Judas, on the other hand, did not repent. He shows no remorse, at least in the way that Acts tells this story. Matthew has a slightly different variation about this. But Luke is wanting to draw contrasts here, and so he's contrasting Peter and Judas. Peter did repent. Judas didn't. And yes, Peter denied Jesus, but Judas betrayed Jesus. And according to this passage, he did it for money. He was offered a place in God's kingdom, but instead he chose, his choices led him to a different place. That's what the text that Peter quotes says. The two psalm passages are linked together in Peter's mind because of the word place. Since Judas has abdicated his place in God's kingdom as an apostle, a new one needs to be appointed to take his place. That's why these two passages are connected. And we find the group choosing two men. It's not just Peter that chooses, by the way. He's offered the suggestion to the group, but he's not the one that makes the final decision. It is offered to the group, and the whole group decides. No commentator that I read interpreted they of verse 23. They nominated two men, is what the text says. No commentator that I read says that the they refers only to the, the 11 disciples or only to Peter. Most commentators believe that it's the whole room that's reflecting the whole room that was there praying, the whole room that was thinking and listening to Peter, they are the ones that nominate the two men. And the oddity of this revolutionary movement of God is that, not, that no one person calls the shots. We might think that Peter is the one. He's the only one, and everybody needs to just listen to Peter. But that's not what happens in this text. There are obvious leaders in church history. We know that. And we elect people, you've elected me to be your pastor. So I have a particular role among you. But friends, I'm not the only leader in this congregation. And it's not just my voice that matters. You believe that, right? Please say you do. Right? Your voice matters. 
You're, you're called to participate in this, church. I'm not here to tell you what to do. My voice isn't the only voice that matters. Peter's voice isn't the only voice that matters here. They listen to Peter. They're listening to God. And together as a group, they decide that we need to do this. There are no sideline sitters in this revolution. <laughs> this church We're all called to participate. We have different roles, don't get me wrong. Not all of you are are called or, or ever want to stand up here and to be the preacher. That's fine. But you have a role, and you have a voice, and you have gifts that need to be offered to the kingdom. But what's even more odd to me is that all of this effort happens so one person can be chosen to fill the vacated spot of Judas. Matthias is chosen. And did you know that Matthias is never mentioned once more in the New Testament? I told you, this is kind of like housekeeping. You had Jesus ascend to heaven. You have the Holy Spirit coming and between these two, they make a decision to replace Judas and the person they replace him with, we never hear about ever again. What? that bizarre? Thank you for agreeing. It is bizarre. (laughs) Did you know that of the 11 named disciples in verse 13, only four are mentioned again in the book of Acts? What is happening here? And did you know, I think you know this, that there are going to be some names that come in the book of Acts that aren't even mentioned here that are key players in the creation of the early church? What about Stephen, Philip, Barnabas, Paul? (laughs) Not listed here, not here at the beginning. What's happening? As odd as this is, there's something quite important for us, I think. The revolution of of the church does not rise or fall based on one person, as important as that person may be. And of course, I'm excluding Jesus here. (laughs) Because everything rises and falls on Jesus' shoulders. We know that. But for the rest of us, maybe not. Judas, one of the original 12, is replaced. The person that replaces him, Matthias, we never hear about ever again. That's not to say that his life didn't matter, he didn't do good stuff. We just don't hear about it. Names come later that aren't there at the beginning. Again, I think this is good news for us. The church, the revolution of God released on this world is built not just by huge, amazing events and extraordinary people, for which I'm very grateful because I don't think I'm among the extraordinary. Amazing events may happen from time to time, that's true, and extraordinary people may come from time to time. That's true as well. Maybe We have one sitting in front of us. Who knows? But you know what is present all of the time? The small things of life and ordinary people like you and me. All of the time. What happens all of the time is the people of God meeting together and trying to make decisions that move this revolutionary force forward. That happens all of the time. What songs do we sing on Sundays? What Bible studies should we offer? Who should teach those Bible studies? Who should be our Sunday school teachers? Who should be on the board or 
or our other board ministries that we have? What activities should we offer? How do we get snow shoveled? That was an important one today. Thank you, shoveling crew. We had some teenagers. We had some men. We had some women. Thank you. Thank you. How do we get the chairs set up? What should we do to reach new people? Are you with me? These are all the questions that every church has to wrestle with. And friends, there are a billion others that we add to it. And guess what? They're pretty ordinary and they're pretty mundane. The revolution is here. (laughs) Does it feel like it? I think if we're listening to the text today, then what we have to say in the revolution looks a lot like Calvary Community Church of the Nazarene. Every once in a while, something amazing happens. That's true. But more often than not, it's pretty ordinary around here, isn't it? But I think it would be a mistake to think that the ordinary doesn't matter. Isn't that what the text is all about? An ordinary decision. Let's replace this person with another person. Is recorded in our Bible because it matters. And I hope this year we see a movement of God in our midst that is extraordinary. I pray for that. I hope you're praying for that. I want to be a part of that. But maybe instead of worrying or hoping or trying to manufacture that, we need to just be faithful to the moments that we do have this year. The everyday, ordinary, mundane decisions that we're going to make as a church because, friends, we're a part of a revolution that's asking us to move it forward. Do our part. We don't get to control everything, but we're going to do our part. What do you think? I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward. We're going to do something that's pretty ordinary in our church as well. We do it every other week. And our theology doesn't have anything built into it that says what happens at the table here is that some miraculous transformation of the elements so that they actually literally become the body and blood of Jesus. We don't teach that. Just humble elements. Simple bread. Simple juice. But somehow when we offer these and ourselves to these simple gifts, God can do something miraculous, can't he? God can do his work. So let's prepare ourselves to come to the table this morning. God, this message has been all about the ordinary things of life. Things that are easy for us to miss, overlook. We get so excited about the miraculous and the marvelous. But maybe this year, as we wrestle with new beginnings, we each need to remember that new beginnings start with small things. Small decisions that are made right now that can change the course of our lives. Small commitments made right now that could have major consequences later on. Oh God, we're not in control of the future, but all we're asked to do is to be diligent with this moment right now, to be faithful right now. So would you meet us where we are? No doubt we have some in this space this morning that are wrestling with faith. 
wondering if they are a part of this kingdom or if they want to be a part of this kingdom? Oh, would you speak to them? God, if today is a day that they would like to make a commitment, I pray that, that they would do so right now. And that the affirmation of that commitment would be them coming forward to receive these elements, signs of your salvation. For the rest of us, God, we have that in our faith past. We've, we've made commitments and we're here today wanting to be transformed and to cha be changed into your image and likeness. So we need to be sanctified through and through. So for the rest of us, may this moment be a sanctifying moment for us where we receive grace for this moment so that we can be your people for this moment. Help us, God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.